Open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be on verses 18 through 22. I'll be reading chapter 3 and verse 13 through chapter 4 and verse 1. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to Your Word, You'd grant us repentance for all the times we come just wanting to have an intellectual one-up with a spiritual veneer. I pray for a humility as we approach. I pray that we would marvel more at Christ as He's clearly presented here than getting all the more obscure parts right. And yet, Father, lead us into truth. This is all Your truth. I pray we will think rightly about these things and that will endear our hearts all the more towards You. In Jesus' name I ask this, amen. I've long been tentative about a possible interpretation of Genesis 6-4, but I'm less so now. Reason being that I've long been tentative about a, pop, uh, a, uh, a possible interpretation of verses 19 and 20 of our, in our text, but I'm less so now. I've changed my mind on both of those texts because of which interpretation I think makes the most sense of the most text and the most sense of most of this text. And don't take that to mean that I have the utmost confidence in either one of those passages. 
I am confident that this is the best commentary on verses 19 and 20. A wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. Martin Luther. 500 years of scholarship have not rectified the situation any. Paul Gardner, contemporary commentator, writes, Virtually everyone finds this section really complex and hard to understand. Which makes me laugh whenever I come to near the end of Peter's second letter and he writes, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, including 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Yet I am in no doubt as to the point of verses 18 and verse 22. And seeing the flow and the connection between the two, will help us make sense of things along the way from one to the other. Jesus suffered for our sins, verse 18. And He now rules from the right hand of the Father, all enemies being put under His feet. And so going from point A to point B, seeing the flow, the connection between those two, will help us make sense of things. Concerning Christ's sufferings, Peter is not only clear, he's incredibly dense. It's amazing how much is packed into so few words. Jesus suffered for sins. And whenever he adds the words uh, concerning his suffering that it was for sins, we need to understand that Jesus is suffering not merely at the hands of man. Once we say for sins, we understand that sin is primarily against God. You may sin against another man, but before and more than you sin against that man, you've sinned against God in that. And so when we say Jesus suffered for sins, we, we've entered into the courtroom of God. We're speaking of God, the judge, almighty God acting as judge in Christ's suffering, the condemnation, the damnation of God. Earlier in one eighteen through 19 Peter speaks of being ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. This suffering for sin is the payment of that ransom, that redemption. This also speaks to the doctrine of propitiation. That God was propitiated or made favorable by the suffering of Christ because He is, as J.I. Packer puts it, acting as the wrath quencher. When Jesus suffered for sin, it wasn't for our, His own sin, because we read in 2 and verse 22 that He committed no sin. Whenever He suffered for sin, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. This is what we call penal substitution, that Jesus was sub suffering in the place of another, paying the penalty in their place. He was suffering the righteous for the unrighteous. He was suffering Bearing our sins and the punishment due them that we might be reckoned or counted righteous with His righteousness. He's doing so, suffering as our federal head, our representative. 
And so as our representative, he was reckoned wretched that we might be reckoned righteous. This is why Isaiah can tell us that he was crushed for our iniquities. His suffering was also perfect, final, complete, sufficient. He suffered once. Hebrews 9 draws out the significance of what is meant by this once. He has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Later, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see the parallel between our passage here in Peter and what is brought out in Hebrews? The Christ who has so suffered for us once for all, now standing at the, seated at the right hand of the Father, all His enemies under His feet. When Jesus suffered as a substitute, He made full satisfaction. And that's why He could cry out, It is finished. What was the goal of this substitutionary suffering? That He might bring us to God. To be saved from the wrath of God is endlessly, immeasurably blissful. But it's not the greatest blessing, the greatest privilege that we enjoy as saints. To be saved from God, by God, is unimaginable. But you're not just saved from Him, by Him. You're saved to Him. This is penal substitutionary atonement, atonement, reconciliation. He did this to bring us to God. Jonathan Edwards unfolds something of what this means. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God Himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs in the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast." The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. 
They will enjoy the angels. They will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels or each other or anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what shall be seen of God in them. So an all-sufficient penal substitutionary atonement is, un- is unfolded in this sentence, and we haven't even finished the sentence. He packs that all in a fragment of a sentence. In this incomplete sentence thus far, we have this complete, glorious salvation. So, warning. As you proceed to look at the difficulties in the rest of the sentence... Don't rack your brain over verses 19 and 20 until verse 18 has softened and melted melted your heart and caused you to rejoice. Because you're not in the proper frame of mind to deal with it otherwise. Towards understanding these next verses, let's ask ourselves, why is Peter putting this before us? The word for takes us back to verse 17, which takes us back to verses 13 through 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. And you link this to verse, chapter 4 and verse 1. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter is putting forth the utter uniqueness of Christ's suffering, and yet he wants us to, to link this to our pilgrimage in this life. He did the same thing in chapter 2, in particular as he's dealing with slaves. Speaking of Christ bearing our sins on the tree, this is a unique thing, and yet he says he was setting an example for us, that we are to follow him in this. So we have these unique sufferings of Christ, and yet there's a way in which we do follow our Lord. And so as we proceed through these next verses, we need to keep this in mind and we need to give more credence to any interpretation or understanding of them which would bolster our faith such that we stand ready to endure suffering for the cause of Christ. Peter here isn't wanting to engender some cold, albeit courageous, approach to the Christian life. A resolve to suffer for righteousness. Whenever he spoke of Christ as our substitute and our representative, suffering for our sins, to make atonement, to bring us to God, the hope of the resurrection is assumed in this. And so he speaks of Christ being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What kind of resurrection was this? Made alive in the Spirit. The ancient Gnostics, the liberal theologians of the 19th century and their offspring... The Jehovah's Witness will all say that Christ didn't rise bodily, He rose spiritually. Is that what this text is getting at? Remember after Jesus' resurrection, He appeared to the disciples and He invited them to touch Him. And then just to drive the point home, He asked if they have anything to eat. They had a piece of broiled fish and He took it. And he ate it. Speaking of our resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44 says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Oh, it's spiritual. Yeah, but notice that it's the same it 
in each instance. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The contrast is not between something material and immaterial. The contrast, as Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 15 to make plain, is this body as it is in Adam versus what it is in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Whenever Paul goes on to say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to who we are in Adam as it is perishing. And so he says this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Note that it is the body that puts those things on. All this to say that the idea of a purely spiritual, floaty, ethereal resurrection is scripturally bunk, without warrant, false, not true. So what is meant by this phrase then, in the spirit? Some translations have a capital S, spirit. Now I believe that the job of translators is to simply translate. But I have to give them some leeway because this is one of those places where the translators must do interpretation as well. There aren't any caps in the manuscripts. They have to make a call whether or not this is simply lowercase spirit, uppercase spirit. Every time they have to do that. There is some work of interpretation that translators do have to do from time to time. This is one of those instances. I think this should be a capital S. Romans 8.11 tells us, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And with that, I think you can see something of what Peter is aiming towards in this text. Whenever Christ suffered, it was in union with Him and you partake of the benefits of that. By the Spirit, you participate in that. By the Spirit, you will also participate in His resurrection. Indeed, you already have. Peter has told you that you were born again through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Chapter 1, verse 3. Now, with this, that Christ rose from the grave by the Spirit, with that... There's something that I think came to the fore more consistently in their minds than does in our minds. It's something that we might miss. As you read through the Psalms, you notice how often David cries out for deliverance, to be raised up from the grave, from the pit, from Sheol, as it were, as his enemies are oppressing him. And what this means is his deliverance means their defeat, them being put under his feet. I think the resurrection is anticipated in all of this, you see. Whenever David receives that deliverance, he's vindicated and he's victorious. Romans 1.4 tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from Christ, of, of Christ was a vindication, a proclaiming that He is indeed the Son of God, the anticipated Christ. Vindicates Him. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. 
So the resurrection is part one of Jesus' public vindication. It's, his, it's part of this transition from, transition from his humiliation to his exaltation. His victory and his glory being made clear and apparent. I take the declaration of Romans 1-4 being declared to be the Son of God to go hand in hand with this proclamation that's made in the Spirit by the resurrected Christ here. Now, to get towards that, we have to wade through some, some waters here. As to what verses 19 through 20 mean, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. As to what these verses mean, three main options have been put forward. Option number one has three variations. 1A. He, so one, simply option number one, Jesus descended into hell and preached. So option 1A, he preached to men who perished in the flood as part of preaching to all men who had perished, offering them a second chance at repentance and belief in light of the, rev, of the full revelation of the gospel. The problem with that is the passage we already read in Hebrews chapter 9. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. No second chances. No spiritual mulligans. Option 1b. He preached and proclaimed judgment to all wicked men. That I can stomach. Option 1c. He preached release to the captives to those who were in a kind of prison, in Hades, if you will, preached release to them, carrying them to heaven. So some will use Ephesians 4.8 to support this. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, which I think this is like trying to poorly make sense of one text by poorly making sense of another. Option two, Jesus preached in the Spirit through Noah. This is the view that Augustine put forward because he didn't like the, the, the origin, the chief proponent of, of the option that we just unfolded. We didn't like how he used that to, uh, to preach universalism, basically. So Augustine put forward this view, and proponents will note that we're not told explicitly when it was that Christ in the Spirit went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison, meaning men in bondage and spiritual bondage enslaved to sin. So in his second letter, Peter will speak of Noah as a herald of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. Earlier in this letter, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I have long thought that the most likely interpretation... I still give it great credence. It could be. Like I said, I have not just absolute confidence in this. That could very likely be what, what Peter's getting at. But I'm not as confident as that interpretation anymore as the one I'm about to unfold because I don't think it makes the most sense of most of this text and the most texts. So the final one is Jesus proclaimed his victory to fallen spirits or demons. If Jesus intended men, by verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
If Peter intended men, it's much more likely that he would say souls than spirits. The very word that's often used in this case for souls is used in the next verse. Verse 20, you have it translated perhaps as persons. Other translations would do better and and be more consistent as, as it's most often translated souls. Eight souls were brought safely through water. So souls is the more normal term to use in that kind of connotation. Spirits most often has reference towards demons, angels. So that's one reason why I don't think this is referring to men. But as we look at the flow of the text, and we'll get there, I think you'll see how this jives better with the point. Who are these spirits who disobeyed? And this is where Genesis 6-4 comes into play, which reads, The Nephilim, the giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. There are two primary interpretations of this passage. First one, that the sons of God were the offspring of Seth, the godly line, the seed of the woman, those who called upon the name of the Lord. And the daughters of man were the offspring of Cain, wicked men, the offspring of Satan, the seed of the serpent, murdering. And so what you have here is the faithful marrying with the unfaithful, plunging all of humanity into iniquity. That's the view I've long held as most plausible. The second interpretation is that the sons of God are angels who either through possession of men or through taking bodily form in some way, procreated with men, with women, had children. In support of this, Jude 6 says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There is not a lot of information here. This interpretation simply seems to me to make the most sense of the most text. Whenever you come to a Bible difficulty, whether or not you agree with me, get that rule. Go with the interpretation that makes the most sense of the most texts, including makes the most sense of most of the texts that you're dealing with. See, ask yourself again, why is it that Peter is doing, why is it that he's wanting to emphasize that Christ rose, and when he rose, he rose in the the Spirit or by the Spirit? Why, why, Why that bent on looking at the resurrection of Christ? You remember in John 16, whenever Jesus unfolding something of the Spirit's work as he's sending forth the Spirit was this. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Whenever Christ rose, it not only dealt with our sins, it conquered our foes. In the resurrection of Christ, the ruler of this world was judged. Now, whenever he rose, no doubt news spread quickly throughout the demonic community 
about their doom and their judgment. But what about those spirits that were kept in eternal chains? What about those spirits that didn't keep their former estate? What about those spirits, those demons, who were imprisoned? Jesus went and proclaimed to them their doom and judgment, His victory and His vindication and His resurrection. This fits the flow and climactic emphasis of our passage. Verse 22, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Now, the rest of verse 20 just simply tells you when these spirits didn't obey. They didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, we got when. Why was all the detail necessary? We know when, the, the time of Noah. Why all the detail? What's the point? I think there are two reasons for all the detail. One, I think the word few helps you get to it. There were a few They were like exiles on this world, awaiting judgment, awaiting the promise of God, awaiting for this world that was perishing to be judged and new creation on the other side of it. Does that sound like 1 Peter so far? But the explicit reason that Peter really draws on is the link of Noah and his family being saved through the waters of judgment to baptism. Verse 21, baptism corresponds to this. The phrase corresponds to this in the original language is a single word. It's a word that, though it's rare, can be brought straight into English. Antitype. Baptism is an antitype of the type of Adam and his family being saved through these waters of judgment. That clear? Whenever you hear type and antitype, think of those ancient and obsolete inventions known as typewriters or the printing press. And so see that metal die with the letter engraved in it. That's the antitype. And whenever it's inked and it strikes the paper, it leaves the type. Antitype, type. And so we'll speak of David being a type of Christ. That is, he is the impression of Christ, or he is a copy of Christ, or he's patterned after Christ that anticipates Christ. But the antitype, you see, came first. And thus it is with baptism, this, this reality of baptism, what baptism is all about is actually first and, and foremost. But we have backwards into history this anticipating shadow or pattern or copy of it. So baptism itself is a sign. So we could say that the flood as a type is a sign. It's an anticipation. You see, the flood, this, the salvation of Noah and his family through these waters, that's a, t- that's a sign of a sign. The flood was a sign of a sign. As if one difficulty wasn't enough, Peter decides to cram in another by saying baptism saves us. Rome has a sacerdotal view of baptism. 
Sacerdotal comes from the Latin word for priest. She believes that the priest, by acting as a priest of Rome, conveys saving grace through the sacrament of baptism. Baptismal regeneration, regenerating grace, comes through the sacrament of baptism because he's a priest of Rome. They say this works ex opere operato, meaning strictly by the working of the work. In other words, it doesn't have to do with the goodness of the priest. It just simply has to do with the validity of the act. He's acting as a priest of Rome. How different that is from the picture of Christ as our high priest. It's because of who he is that what he does is effective. But this works simply by the working of the work. Such that this regenerating saving grace is conveyed to the recipient of baptism. And by this they mean that not that he's made new such that he believes and then his belief, by his belief, he's, he's, he receives this alien righteousness that's imputed or counted or reckoned as his, but rather he's actually infused with real righteousness. Imparted, not imputed, imparted righteousness. He's, he becomes righteous, he's made righteousness. Now he can mess that up all over again, but he can buy this receive that in baptism, which is why so many waited until their deathbed to receive the sacrament of baptism. Also, the church of Christ believes that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins. And a host of others who proclaim to be Christians across all denominational swaths need to hear this. You are not saved. Because of some physical act of water baptism. Well, how can I say that? Isn't that what Peter just said? Baptism saves us. No, he qualifies that the baptism that saves us is not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not a physical act. It's not something that water can accomplish. It isn't the sign that saves. It's what's signified. That's the point of a sign. It doesn't point to itself. It points to something else. So what is a baptism a sign of? Union with Christ in His death and His resurrection. Union with Him such that you're buried, you're cleansed, you're washed, you're made new, and you rise a new creation. In Romans 6, 3-5, Paul speaks of being baptized into Christ. And whenever he does that, he's not speaking of the sign. He's speaking of that signified. He said you were immersed into Jesus. This is something that happens spiritually. He writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Baptism into Jesus speaks to our spiritual union with Him and our representational union with Him in His death and resurrection. You are united to Christ not only in His suffering for your sins, but also in His victorious and glorious resurrection. You see why Paul is putting this forth? Why he wants to make this connection with baptism here to these saints? But how does this jive 
with Peter's elaboration on how baptism does save us. Baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience, or the translation I prefer, as an appeal to God of or from a new conscience. Whenever the Spirit regenerates you, whenever He makes you new, when He causes you to be born again, when that happens, you believe. That new birth happens, Peter told us in 1 and verse 3, happens through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You're in union with Christ. When He rises, everything is accomplished. And whenever the Spirit, and whenever God the Father sends the Spirit to cause you to be a born again, it is a union with Christ in His resurrected life. And thus you believe. And that belief is an appeal to God of or from a good conscience, a new heart. It's an appeal to God from a new heart. And thus, God saves you. 1 in verse 21, Peter says that through Jesus, we are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The baptism that saves you is union with Christ in His death and resurrection such that you are born again and believe. And the resurrected Christ you are in union with sits at the right hand of the Father with all enemies subjected to Him. Why is it better to suffer for good? That's the question that's basically put to us in this text. That's what the four is getting to. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good. Why? Why is it better to suffer for doing good? Verse 18, four. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? You notice his answer? Jesus. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? Jesus. Because of His death, because of His resurrection, because of His ascension. You remember Paul asked us, if we only have hope in this life, we are all of, of all men most miserable. So what should we do? Eat, drink, and be merry. Why is it better to suffer for good? Because we don't just have hope in this life. Because we are in union with Christ, who not only died, but rose again and has ascended and all enemies are under His feet. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? Because of Christ's victory and His vindication. Because you're in union not just with His penal substitutionary suffering, but with His resurrection victory and glory and vindication. Because of the gospel in this full and robust way. So look, look at this passage and see not only the depth of His sufferings, but also the breadth of His victory and the height from which He rules. And then look at it with your jaw on the floor in astonishment that you're in union with Him in all of that. Does Peter really intend for you to draw this conclusion? Have I gone too far? Peter opens this letter by speaking to elect exiles of their imperishable hope. An inheritance that they were born again to. In 111, he mentions Jesus' sufferings and his subsequent glories. That's the pattern of the Christian life that he unfolds in the letter suffering first, then glory. 
In 2.21, he says that we are to follow in Jesus' steps, that he set us an example. But you don't just follow Christ who you're in union with in his suffering. You're walking the path towards his glory in him. 4.13, after this passage, so it shows his thought as it's developing further. 4.13, he encourages them saying, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And that it is indeed that we are in union with Christ, not only in His suffering, but also in His glory. That that's the case. That that's where Peter's going. Chapter 5 and verse 1 makes plain. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And that glory is Christ's. And saints, we partake in it. Peter is at great pains to encourage these saints to suffer for righteousness' sake. And to suffer righteously. And to suffer with faith. Christian living has theological foundations. You need slight motivations for living in a certain way for things that are relatively painless. I need zero motivation to eat a bowl of ice cream. You need greater motivations for that which is more painful. And when you're building a living temple... Whenever you're building this temple to declare the glories of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Whenever God is about building that kind of a temple and the chief glory that we're proclaiming is the glory of the Christ that this world so hated that it crucified. Knowing that we are in union with Him can expect the same treatment because they still hate that Jesus. Whenever that's the kind of life that you're trying to push out of the body of Christ, you need deep foundations. That is what Peter's been at pains to lay here. Don't miss the clear glories of Christ that are here for the obscurities. See the glory of Christ in His humiliation and His resurrection and exaltation. See yourself in union with Him And you'll not only want to declare His excellencies, you'll be willing to suffer to do so. By His grace and His Spirit in union with Him, may it be so in us. Let's pray. Father, grant great grace reflecting upon the wealth of blessing that we have in Christ to go forward in faith and not fearful of men, but fearful of God to proclaim Christ in His death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.